been a great conference. Um, and this conference, in a lot of ways, is a um, part of this whole much larger project that my colleagues and I have been engaged on, um, looking at uh, World War One Centennial. Um, we, this is some of them, uh, have spent the last year uh, working on this uh, web-based project, Montana and the Great War. And as Bruce says, you can access it through your homepage. Everyone got a bookmark in their packet, and that has the URL if you want to do it directly. And um, the website includes magazine articles, uh, little pieces of oral history, uh, uh, audio, um, a series of interactive maps that feature images and events from across the state. And all of them are exploring the ways that the uh, war and its aftermath affected um, Montanans. So as Bruce said, I've worked at the Montana Historical Society for a long time. And um, so before starting this project, I thought I knew something, uh, a little bit about Montana history. And you know, I did, a little bit. I'd read Clem Work's book and uh, Michael Punk's book, and they were uh, great, and a lot of uh, wonderful articles by the late, great Dave Walter uh, and others. So I had a little background. But um, it, it's always true. Once you really start digging, you learn a lot of new things. And that's what is uh, one of the great pleasures of my job, is that I get to do that kind of digging. So I'm here this morning to share a little bit of that joy of discovery uh, uh, by sharing some of the things that I learned uh, in the course of working on that project. Um, given that you all have been listening to talks on, on uh, Montana and World War I for the last uh, couple days, um, some of this is going to be old news. Uh, depending on what sessions you've attended, you'll, you'll recognize some of these stories. But I'm hoping um, that uh, I can find something that will make you ponder, make you wonder, make you think, just like they did me. And of course, I'm hoping that my talk will uh, spur you to go and explore our website. So um, and there's the website. Um, the first revelation for me really was how sick America and Montana uh, really was. So like many of you, I knew that uh, 5,000 Montanans had died of the flu and that almost 40,000 Montanans uh, uh, were sick with it, were infected by it. Um, and I also knew that in addition to being the Gibraltar of unionism and the richest hill on earth, Butte was also known as a city of widows and orphans because so many miners died young um, of industrial accidents, of course, but also of tuberculosis. Um, that's the flu. There we go. And here's a picture of Butte. Um, and this picture was taken as part of a study on TB. Um, looking at, at the causes. The company didn't want um, to admit that maybe the conditions underground were, uh, were the uh, prime cause. So they were, and, and of course, they weren't the only cause. Uh, my colleague, Laura Ferguson, um, also told me that tuberculosis was endemic on Indian reservations. But I still hadn't realized how um, prevalent tuberculosis was, so prevalent that it was a leading cause of discharge for disability during the war. And tuberculosis wasn't the only threat. 
um, Missoula historian revealed to me, uh, Caleb Blackman, uh, told me all about venereal disease, something I hadn't really thought about much before I talked with her. Uh, and that was an even more common problem, infecting one in 10 enlisted men. Uh, there was a massive public health campaign to keep men fit to fight. And you can go to the digitized newspapers and type in social disease, and you can find all sorts of articles and things like this one. Um, part of the fight against venereal disease was um, taking coercive measures. And over 15,000 women across the country, mostly prostitutes, were quarantined, uh, often without trial, for the duration of the war and, or until no longer contagious. And just as tuberculosis and venereal disease, uh, that's just tuberculosis and venereal disease. According to one source I read, when the federal government began screening men for the draft, they found that 30% of eligible men were physically unfit to serve. Another revelation was the link between patriotism and easy credit. Like many of you, I knew that farmers were encouraged to expand their operations to feed the troops and the allies. And I knew that over half the banks in Montana failed in the 1920s because so many farmers defaulted on their loans. I'd always assumed that this was uh, due to drought, uh, that post-war drought that began in earnest in 1918, and also the drop in commodity prices as Europe once again began to produce grain after the war and as they no longer needed um, uh, so many crops to feed the troops. But what I didn't realize was how instrumental the Council of Defense was in securing loans, even to farmers with bad or no credit, uh, something that Alex Kirkey talked about yesterday. By May uh, 1917, the Council of Defense distributed surveys reminding farmers that increasing food production was their patriotic obligation and offering assistance. County councils collected uh, surveys uh, of farmers' needs, and uh, the Council of Defense created a state fund to loan farmers money for seed. But in addition, some of the county councils urged banks to loan money even if the applicant, quote, might not orderly, ordinarily be entitled to credit. Now, there was at least one county council of defense member who opposed this program. He said that in Prairie County, where he was from, competent farmers already had the resources they needed, and that those who would avail themselves of the loans were poor credit risks. He urged the council not to publicize the program, predicting a high rate of default. And he was right. Patriotic expansion of operations facilitated by easy credit contributed to Montana's post-war economic crisis. And as Rich mentioned um, in his talk, you know, that was, uh, we went into the Great Depression, you know, a good 10 years early, earlier than the rest of the country. So what else did I learn? Well, I knew that American Indians served in great num numbers, but I didn't realize how stereotypes about Indians made their service more dangerous. Uh, Euro-Americans viewed Indians as, as instinctively uh, courageous and stealthy. So army officers assumed that they would make good scouts and runners. These positions suffered high casualty rates. Um, William Hollabrust was a Northern Cheyenne runner for the Battery B of the 33rd Division's 122nd Field Artillery at the San Miel and uh, Musargan offensives. He remembered delivering messages 
as shells tore the battery in pieces and the arms and legs of the men were falling at my feet. Over 10,000 uh, plus uh, Indians uh, served uh, nationwide and they suffered casualty rates five times greater than the American Expeditionary Force as a whole. Uh, many, including Peter Barnaby of the Flathead Reservation, earned citations for distinguished service. Uh, Barnaby, Company I, 26th Infantry, 1st Division, received the Croix de Guerre for his heroism in the bloody battle of Nisargan. Now, Chief Plenty Coup is well known for encouraging Crow men to enlist during World War I, and he's uh, shown here placing his acoustic on the tomb of the unknown soldier at the dedication ceremony in 1921, which he was invited uh, to participate in as a representative of all Native America. But of course, not all Indians supported uh, Native participation in the war. Um, I was talking to my colleague, Laura Ferguson, uh, last Wednesday, and she shared with me a poem published in April 1917 that was written by Yavapai Apache activist Carlos Montezuma. He was a physician and a co-founder of the Society of the American Indian. And it's called Steady Indian Steady, and I thought it was worth sharing. So a little poetry to start your morning. The ghost craze has come and gone. The war craze is on. And if you want to fight, fight. But let no one force you in. Steady, Indians, steady. In the excitement of war fury, it requires a level head not to get dizzy. Steady, Indians, steady. This is civilization's fight. You are tagged that verges on seeking for blood. Will it pay to prove it? Then fight. Steady, Indian, steady. Fight for your country and flag is noble and grand, but have you a country? Is that your flag? With sober mind, think on it and do the right. Steady, Indians, steady. Pause with calm mind, think on it, but let no one push you in it. If you do not know what you are fighting for, stay at home. Steady, Indian, steady. They have taken your country. They have taken your manhood. They have imprisoned you. They have made you wards. They have stunted your faculties. Steady, Indians, steady. You are not entitled to the rights of man. You are not an American citizen. You are an Indian. You are nothing, and that is all. Steady, Indian, steady. Redskins, true Americans, you have a fight with those whom you wish to fight for. It is your birthright, freedom. Let them make good. With better heart, you will fight side by side under the same flag. Steady, Indians, steady. Uh, Montezuma wasn't the only person skeptical about the war, of course, which brings me to my next point. Uh, not everyone wanted to do their bit. Um, Montana sent a larger percentage of its men to war than almost any other state, but that doesn't mean that everyone was eager to uh, serve. Laverne Hamilton, uh, who was a nonpartisan league uh, organizer who lived near Roundup, uh, recalled in his reminiscence that a number of men of his acquaintance on learning that the draft only applied to married men 
went ahead and got married so they could stay out of the war. There was an epidemic of weddings, he said. As one of the new brides, bridegrooms said to me, I decided to get married and do my fighting at home. Uh, not everyone, uh, oh, that's a recruitment poster that I just thought was cool, that they were resisting. Uh, not everyone wanted to do their bit at home either, uh, while Maria uh, Drennan, pictured here of Mild City, worked uh, 1,600 hours knitting 61 pairs of men's uh, socks and 41 pairs of children's socks for the Red Cross. Uh, and the Kalispell newspaper lauded the 115 liberty-loving women who met in the basement of the Masonic Temple to sew surgeons' gowns and to knit. The Roundup record found it necessary to cascade local women. According to that paper, for the first few weeks after Roundup's Red Cross office opened, it was bustling. But now, only the truly loyal women were to be found there. Um, and this was March 1918, so almost a year after a U.S. entry into the war. The others could be found at card parties, teas, and other social functions, uninterrupted by thoughts or worries for the safety of the boys from Roundup. Comparing the women of Roundup unfavorably to the women of the Revolutionary and Civil Wars because everyone is always better back then, uh, the paper sternly declared in bold font with each word capitalized, the woman who neglects her duty to the soldiers for the sake of card parties and other unnecessary social functions is a slacker. Another uh, measure of patriotism was the purchase of war bonds, and Montanans bought their share, often more than their share, and here in a couple of newspaper clippings, uh, one from Glasgow and one from Shoto, talking about how their communities are oversubscribed. Um, but uh, patriotism wasn't the only thing that motivated Montanans to, war, to buy war bonds. And I think people have talked a little bit about this before. Uh, in, if you went to Natasha Hollenbach, I think, talked about this in her session. Uh, in Columbia Falls in April 1918, a soliciting committee went house to house, uh, armed with detailed information about each family. And this was in the paper. And they said, they're coming. They're going to have a card. And that card is going to include your nationality, your church, whether you were a citizen, the value of your real and personal property, an estimate of indebtedness, an estimate of net worth, estimated income, former subscriptions to the Red Cross, YMCA, Knights of Columbus, and previous Liberty Loan purchases. The paper explained, while it has been estimated what each person should subscribe, uh, there's nothing to pre prevent an oversubscription. Neither will the party called upon be told what his allotment is, but he will be asked to subscribe for as much as he cares to. And if that sum does not equal the figure estimated to be his share, the matter will be taken up in a different way. So Columbia Fall was leaving nothing to chance. Food was another area where, people resolves, where people's resolve sometimes faltered. Uh, historians estimate that meatless Mondays and wheatless Wednesdays and other voluntary sacrifices allowed the US to furnish an additional 18.5 million tons of food to the Allies. But not everyone embraced the government's demand to save wheat for the fighters. Uh, Dan Cushman, and I read Dan Cushman's autobiography, uh, plenty of um, room and air on the recommendation of um, 
uh, Dale Martin, he's a professor at Montana State University, and I, I contacted him early and I said, what should I read? And he said, oh, there's this great reminiscence that gives us child-eye view of the war, and I recommend it. Uh, he grew up near Harlem, Dan did, um, and he remembers his mother trying to make uh, Liberty War bread with substitute flours that she was required to buy, because while there wasn't rationing, there was this requirement that if you were going to buy wheat flour, you also had to buy a certain amount of uh, rye or corn flour. Um, and he said nobody would eat it. It was terrible. Um, and uh, so she fed it to the chickens. And this was a family that was quite pro-war. Um, it was failed and they wouldn't eat it. And then after that first attempt, she didn't even bother to try to make bread. She'd just make mush and use that as chicken feed with her substitute flours. And so he said, we ate war bread only in a different form as a white bread, eggs, and fried chicken. A good common sense solution. Um, history is about empathy, and diving into the sources gave me a better understanding of how genuinely scared many Montanans were of the industrial workers of the world, anti-war resistance, and their German neighbors. And this included Dan Cushman, who remembered being convinced that the Huns were going to invade his town, uh, Harlem. Uh, it's easy to laugh at uh, headlines like this one, uh, your neighbor, your maid, your lawyer, your waiter may be a German spy. Um, and it's easy to look back with judgment towards Montanans um, for going too far in their response to World War I. Now, I think we're right to condemn the burning of German textbooks pictured here in Lewistown. And by the way, this was a prelude. The prelude to this book burning was um, uh, a mob pursuing men they thought were pro-German, forcing them to kiss the flag. And the culmination of the day's events was an evening parade joined the newspaper reported by uh, 2,000 people, which was about a third of the town. Also shameful uh, in, uh, is the imprisonment of 79 Montanans for sedition, including popular area farmer Theodore Klipstein, who was convicted after a one-day trial for saying that only the damned officials we sent to Washington and the big moneyed men wanted war. The father of nine served 25 months in prison. And by the way, he, he said these when he was there registering for the draft, right? Um, equally horrifying is um, extra legal violence against union leaders and pacifists. Uh, Frank Little's lynching is the most famous and the most brutal, but it was not a complete anon anomaly. According to historian Bonnie Christensen in Red Lodge, the Liberty Committee took suspected IWW leaders to the basement of the Elk Lodge, strung a rope around uh, one of their necks, hauled him up three times before he admitted he was a wobbly and provided names of other members. And that incident ended in a horrific shooting where uh, one of uh, the IWW, a suspected IWW Finnish miners um, escaped went home, he had a gun, he thought they were coming for him, he shot his gun uh, when he heard someone entering his house and it turned out to be his border. Um, and he, so he murdered a, a woman who was living with them. Uh, near Glendive, 12 men, including the county sheriff. And this is, I think, really important. These were not ruffians, right? This is the county sheriff, two attorneys, a banker, and uh, several business owners and cattlemen 
went and kidnapped a local Mennonite minister, John Franz, from a school board meeting. Uh, they drove him out to an isolated area in the Badlands where there was a large, uh, large tree. They tried to put a noose around his neck. Uh, his son said um, that he was able to hold on to the rope. His father was able to hold on to the rope with unexpected strength and um, plead with the men to not do this, plead with his lynch mob. And he addressed the men he knew directly. He said to the sheriff, he said, I voted for you because I believed in you and trusted you. You were to give me protection if and when I need, needed it. Now you are not giving me that protection. And he talked it the same way to the county attorney. And after much pleading, they took him back to Glendive. They locked him in the county jail. Um, there was another plan to take him out of the county jail with a bigger mob, but they didn't. They ultimately released him under a $3,000 bond. And uh, years later, by the way, one of the attorneys came and asked forgiveness, with John, which John France readily gave. Uh, none of the other 12 ever mentioned it. Um, because these stories, this type of story, seem to us today like madness, um, I think it's especially important to put them in context. The fact is, capitalists, both Main Streeters and Copper Kings, professionals uh, like the attorneys, many farmers and ranchers believed that left-wing radicals were a real threat. Um, because after all, 1917 was not only the year that the United States entered World War I, it was also the beginning of the Russian Revolution. Now, I knew bits and pieces of Montana's uh, labor history, including the fact that on June 23, 1914, disgruntled rank-and-file members of the Beat Miners Union dynamited their own union hall uh, because they thought their, their union had sold out to the company. And that as violence escalated, Governor uh, Stewart declared martial law and uh, the Montana National Guard occupied view. But what I didn't know was that in North Dakota, over 100 harvest wobblies in itinerant farm workers who were also members of the industrial workers of the world borrowed a great northern train and headed toward Butte to support their union brothers. And Rich Arstad ably told this story in greater de detail yesterday. Uh, the left, especially the labor left, had enough power to instill fear. And I think you might have seen this headline already, but these are anarchistic demonstrations in Butte, broke up by quick action of troops. Um, I also hadn't really realized how deliberate the fear-mongering campaign against uh, both immigrants and radicals, and especially radical immigrants, was. Anti-immigrant and anti-radical sentiment predated the war. In 1915, for example, uh, President Wilson called immigrants foreign-born creatures of passion, disloyalty, and anarchy who must be crushed out. According to historian David Kennedy, conservative elements sought to suffocate troublesome immigrant and working class elements in an avalanche of patriotism. The war provided a perfect vehicle for this, a fact that George Creel, the head of the Committee on Public Information, which was the federal agency in charge of wartime propaganda, recognized. After armistice, he reflected, I am not sure that, 
If the war had to come, it did not come at the right time for the preservation and reinterpretation of American ideals. Now that's like a really convoluted sentence, but if you take out those double negatives, what he's saying is the war came at the right time for the preservation and reinterpretation of American ideals. Uh, this poster is not one of Creel's. Um, it was part of a campaign created by the National Association of Manufacturers to promote industrial conservation, which was a belief that there should be a closer personal economic understanding uh, between employer and workmen. In 1917, the association explained its motivation for promoting industrial conservation. It said, if the principle of industrial conservation is not effectively carried out in American industry, the alternative will be a form of state-controlled socialism, but we do not, because we do not see what other alternative there can be. Uh, for those of you in the back, or maybe even the front, man, it's hard to read that poster. Uh, what what you see up there is on top, right there. That bridge is uh, the bridge that will win the war. And it's made up of ships carrying American-produced supplies to Europe and cheered on by both wage earners and their bosses. And then on the bottom is the hyphen bridge. And of course, the hyphen bridge is referring to hyphenated Americans, like German Americans or Finnish Americans, Italian Americans. And across the bridge was walking plots, that bridge, the hyphen bridge, Plots, fires, agitation, and unrest. And the question is, which bridge do you want? Um, Montana mirrored the nation, and the nation learned from Montana. Um, as I think many of you know, in August 1917, Montana Senator Henry Myers of Hamilton, who was a longtime anti-union conservative, uh, some would say kind of a, a company man, he introduced Senate Bill 2789, which was a law to punish inflammatory talk. It targeted industrial workers of the world, who, Meyer claimed, were openly preaching strikes and denouncing the war. And they were. <laughs> um, the bill died in committee, but less than a, a year later, attitudes had shifted. Uh, shortly after the Montana legislature had adopted uh, Meyer's language for the Montana Sedition Act in February 1918, an almost identical bill passed Congress by large majorities. And this cartoon, uh, for those of you who can't see the wording, uh, there's a flag over the Capitol, and it says, Sedition Law Passed. And then among them, Uncle Sam is rounding up undesirables. Um, there's a beast-like IWW down there at the bottom left, uh, a traitor, a spy, and a member of the Irish national organization, uh, Sinn Féin. So it's within this context, aggravated by sensationalist and unvetted newspaper reports, uh, including the suggestion that German agents might have been responsible for the speculator mine disaster, and that German agents had set up a communication station near Paradise, um, because we all know that's where German agents would want to set up, right? Um, as well as actual sabotage, um, that people came to fear German spies and the IWWs in their midst, and they were genuinely scared. Uh, in an interview many years later, Northern Pacific telephone operator Minda McNally insisted mistakenly that IWW spies would derail trains by throwing a switch at the wrong time. 
These spies for Germany could do anything to delay a troop train or injure our troops. Um, I think, and that's Minda there, uh, uh, in her high school yearbook photograph, and she's uh, bottom right. I think most of us would like to believe that we would have resisted the worst of this propaganda, and we would have stood with people like Judge Borkman and Attorney General Burton K. Wheeler in opposing the trampling of civil liberties. But hindsight is 2020. Um, exploring this context isn't to excuse the violence, uh, arrests, civil liberties violations, but it is to begin to understand it and to recognize how much of the tensions or class tensions and how much of the fear was engineered in order to protect capitalism. While the National Association of Manufacturing were promoting their version of 100% Americans, organizations like the Nonpartisan League uh, tried to offer uh, competing definition of patriotism, one that included a socialist vision with state control of grain elevators, banks, and other industries to reduce the power of corporate interests. And I don't know if you can see this again, but this is a cartoon published in the Nonpartisan League's Producers News, which under the editorship of Red Flag, Charlie Taylor became a Communist Party's agricultural newspaper in the 1920s. And in this picture, and this was uh, Armistice Day, the soldiers marching home and saying, now to get back home and help dad and the boys clean out a few autocrats there. You know, I think it's fair to say that the Nonpartisan League lost that rhetorical war. There's a lot of interesting stories, so many that it was hard to choose uh, these few to feature. Um, and a lot of them are sober, you know, I, I feel a little bad breakfast talk, it's, it's, it's been a downer, and that's because World War I kind of is a downer. Um, <laughs> but uh, if I had more time, I'd tell you about, and maybe this was good not to talk too much about at breakfast, um, how awful it would have been to be a nurse, um, though apparently many of the women he served loved it. Uh, despite of, or perhaps because of, the 14-hour days, changing dressings and irrigating and disinfecting wounds, all while listening to the whistling of bombs. Um, and I was, every time I study history, I am really, really, really grateful for the invention of penicillin. Just changed my life. Um, and aside in terms of being a nurse, and uh, I didn't know that um, the field of plastic surgery came out of World War I. I, I don't know if you did. Um, and I learned that when I was researching uh, Baker, Montana nurse uh, Violet Hodgson, who worked as chief nurse for Dr. V.P. Blair, who specialized in facial reconstruction and became known as the father of plastic surgery. And it was Rich Arstad who explained to me why um, facial reconstruction was so important during World War I, and it's because it's trench warfare, and so that's what's gonna get shot. Um, I tell you about the English and French agents who traveled to Montana to purchase horses, if we had more time. Uh, when French representatives arrived in Ekalaka in 1915, they paid $115 for cavalry, $140 for gunners, and $155 for artillery, artillery horses. Horses, I learned, proved particularly vulnerable to uh, the machine gun and artillery fire of modern warfare. And so we're not uh, 
So they were primary, primarily used for hauling supplies behind the lines. Uh, the U.S. exported a million horses to its allies, and an additional 182,000 horses accompanied the uh, American Expeditionary Force to France. And I'd introduce you to Emil Christensen, a German immigrant who had moved to Bozeman in the years before World War I, sent to fight overseas with Montana 2nd Infantry, uh, Christensen served in a field hospital during the Argonne Offensive, and after the war he guarded German POWs. When one POW asked Christensen why he chose to fight for the U.S., even though he was a German uh, citizen, Christensen responded, because America is my home. Um, but time is short, so as Bruce said, I invite you to uh, make your own discoveries, uh, as Bruce already has done, by spending some time on our website, listening to selections from the oral histories, and Minda, um, Minda's is on them, on there, uh, as is Christensen's, although his is really hard to understand, but we also have transcripts. Uh, downloading and reading articles from Montana, the magazine of Western history, and any other sources, and of course, exploring the story and map. But I'd also invite you to step away from your computer, take the special Doing Our Bit uh, tour um, that uh, uh, Bobby Harris and Maggie Orden um, created for the original Governor's Mansion, and to visit the new World War I exhibit here at the Montana Historical Society when it opens in a few months or one of the other commemorative exhibits around the state. And I'm really looking forward to listening to Raphael Chacon uh, this afternoon and getting over to Missoula to look at the exhibit that they created. And of course, I look forward to joining you in discovery at the rest of this morning's sessions. Thank you.